Welcome to Velocity, the Vista Chamber podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Beld, and it's my privilege to interview the movers, shakers, and changemakers impacting the Vista community and beyond. Today, I am joined by Vista Mayor John Franklin. Elected on a platform focusing on solutions to address homelessness and improve public safety, Mayor John Franklin was a leader in the creation of Vista's award-winning homelessness strategic plan. First elected to the Vista Irrigation Board of Directors in 2012 and elected to the Vista City Council in 2014, Mayor Franklin was appointed by his colleagues to serve as Deputy Mayor in 2017, 2019, and 2022. He is the fourth directly elected mayor of the city of Vista. Mayor Franklin is also a strong believer in fiscally responsible and transparent government and has worked to improve Vista's financial position while on the city council. Mayor Franklin's also been a strong advocate for improving traffic flows in our community to get residents home safer and faster. In addition to his core priorities, Franklin has worked to eliminate blight in Vista, improve our parks, acquire new public park lands, and promote public art in our community. In support of the city's long-term efforts to revitalize downtown and the Santa Fe Corridor, he's worked to create a business-friendly climate to attract new investments and employers to Vista. A graduate of the American University in Washington, D.C., Franklin served nearly a decade as a congressional policy advisor before opening his own small business in Vista. He and his wife, Shauna, are residents in the Vista Shadow Ridge area. Mayor Franklin, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Yeah, I'm so glad you could join us. I know you have a very busy schedule, so I appreciate you fitting us in. Um, So I want to jump in and learn a little bit about your past. And so I'm curious, where did you grow up? I grew up in Kansas. Kansas. Okay. So how did you end up in Vista? (laughs) Well, tell me about that journey. Sure. So I grew up in Leewood, Kansas, which is part of the Kansas City metro area. And then when I was uh, about 18 years old, I moved to the Missouri side of Kansas City is bisected by the state line. So I moved into Missouri. I did my first two years of uh, school at the University of Missouri, Kansas City campus. And uh, I was actually in school at UMKC when September 11th happened. And that had an incredible impact on me uh, psychologically and really made me evaluate what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, Spent a lot of weeks in my apartment watching the news, I think as we all did at that time, just in disbelief about what was happening to us as a nation. And uh, of course, the enormous uh, feeling of solidarity that we had as Americans and patriotism and the anger and frustration about being attacked as a nation, all those things weighed on me and, and I think really impelled me to pursue a career in public service, uh, which was something I already had a, an interest in from the time I was young. I've, I've kind of always been interested in politics. Um, you know, it's how, how could you not be fascinated by who gets what and how? Mm-hmm. At least that's how my uh, poli-sci 101 professor uh, described what politics is all about. And it really is fundamentally uh, about how we divide resources. And so uh, I took advantage of the opportunity to uh, be an intern and represent the Associated Students of the University of Missouri. And I went to Jefferson City, Missouri, and I lobbied the, at the state capitol uh, on behalf of some things that the Student uh, Body Association had come up with as legislative priorities. And so I traipsed around the halls of the state capitol. Uh, I was uh, worked a little bit uh, on some campaigns for the state house. And then I decided that I liked politics and wanted to make a career of it. I went to Washington, D.C., uh, to really to finish my education and graduate from the American University. And I had an opportunity to intern in the office of the House Majority Whip, uh, which uh, I actually had a, if you look at the West Front, which is kind of the the part of the Capitol that faces the National Mall, 
Uh, I had one of the big arched windows. My desk was pushed right up against, and I was looking right down at the Washington Monument from the Capitol building. Wow. I was in a little tiny hallway. It wasn't a grand space from the inside of the building. From the outside, it's pretty magnificent, and the view was excellent. But it was uh, a place where an intern was uh, was warehoused, believe it or not. Um, and uh, and then I, I got a job working with Congressman Darrell Issa 20 years ago. I uh, was hired to answer the mail. And so I spent... A lot of hours. The the legislative correspondent is the person who answers all the mail on Capitol Hill. And it is a, a big job because every congressman on average receives about 3,000 pieces of correspondence every month. And wow. so it was my job to work with the congressman and his staff to make sure that I understood his positions and to draft responses that were thoughtful uh, and to make sure the congressman approved of those responses. Uh, so I developed a love for corresponding with Americans about the issues of the day. And I started working on behalf of the people of Vista 20 years ago from Washington, D.C. And it was in 2003 when I first traveled to uh, to Vista. Uh, I stayed at the La Quinta. It was one of the only places to stay in Vista. Uh, it's um, not my favorite place to recommend as a hotel these days, I'm sorry to say. Um, we're, we're always encouraging uh, ownership there to improve. But uh, we've got some, some great new hotels as a consequence of city leadership. Uh, I know you've been involved as a chamber uh, executive to make some of those things come to reality. And before that, you were part of the uh, economic development team for the city. So I know you you know the history of that very well. Um, but uh, when I moved out, uh, you know, I I was working for the congressman. I um, In 2012, I ran for a seat on the water board. I wanted to find another way to be involved and to serve the community. And uh, when I got elected to the water board, I... Um, I left the working for the congressman and the federal government and I started my own business and I met my wife a year before that. And we rented a, an office suite where we're still at to this day. I think we've been there for about 12 years now, uh, right across the hall from the congressman's offices. And uh, we work with uh, elected leaders and nonprofit organizations and private businesses. We do marketing, we do websites, we do uh, direct mailing campaigns. Uh, we're basically an advertising agency. So that's that's who I am, what I do, and, and a little snapshot of how I got where I am. Two years after I got elected to the, to the water board, uh, there was an opportunity to run for the city council. And so I ran and was elected uh, about nine years ago and served for eight years as a member of the council. And then when Mayor Ritter decided that she was not going to seek reelection, I looked around and realized I was the most uh, senior member of the council. And uh, I decided I would run for mayor. And I, and I really decided, I, I, just, I just spent the last hour uh, on a call with the Alliance for Regional Solutions uh, talking about homelessness. Mm -hmm. There are North County uh, sort of version of the continuum, continuum of care. Um, and they, uh, they're a contracting agency that divides money up for the different service providers. And we actually use that agency to let contracts on behalf of the city of Vista for shelter beds and other service providers. Um, but homelessness is, is the issue of our day. And it's the thing that I said, if I have an opportunity to lead on this subject, then I'll continue to serve. Uh, otherwise, I think, uh, you know, eight years is probably enough and it's time for somebody else to serve. But I wanted to make a difference on this one thing. And so I have really tried to be the leader that has dived into this issue uh, with, you know, maybe more depth than, than most uh, would dare to. And I've learned a lot. And, and every day I realize there's a lot more to learn. Great. Well, I have some questions about homelessness Great. in a bit. Um, but I wanted to ask you, so when you were 
in DC and you're working on correspondence, are those letters? Are they emails? Yeah. I'm very curious just about the, were you writing letters? Were you typing? Like, I'm very curious about what the function, what function you actually. So it, generally speaking, <laughs> if you write an actual letter to your congressman, you're probably going to get an actual letter back. Right. If you send an email, you're going to get an email back. Okay. That makes sense. Um, we actually, uh, Congressman Issa is, is a believer in, you know, he's, he's considered a technology leader in Congress. Okay. And I love technology. And I was proud. Uh, Congressman Issa came to me and he said, we're going to get rid of all this paper. We had huge filing cabinets. Every congressional office was full of an, an incredible number of filing cabinets because, of course, before computers, everything was on paper. Right. And Congress is a, an institution that's, you know, 240 uh, some years old now. And so um, a lot of, a lot of uh, old office history there, but we were the first to scan digitally all of our incoming mail. Oh, wow. And then we would, we computerized it. Uh, we used optical character recognition to um, not only to look for major subject matter, but to look for the contact information so that we could uh, more efficiently generate responses that were correct. Because um, typically what happens is of the 3000 letters that you get in a month, Generally speaking, about 300 of them will be all in the same subject. Right. And, uh, and and it may be like immigration was a big issue 20 years ago. It still is, of course. There may be uh, 12 different subsets of, we may have, you know, 12 letters geared towards immigration that address different subset issues. Uh, and, and if someone writes a, a letter that asks a question that's not been asked before, then it would be my job to draft a letter that specifically answers that question. Okay. Take it to the congressman's staff members, his chief of staff, and ultimately to the congressman to approve to answer that specific question. So you're, you might be getting a form letter back from your congressman, but know that most members of Congress take great care to make sure that the, uh, the response is specific to the question that's being asked. You're probably not the only person to have that specific question, though, because every member of Congress represents about 750,000 people. Right. So, um, but, and then, you know, you learn about the policy issues by answering these letters. And I was promoted after a year and a half to be a legislative assistant, which is a policy advisor. And I worked with the Congressman to take his ideas and work with our legislative council, the attorneys that actually draft bills. And I was sort of the liaison between the Congressman and legislative council to draft legislation that was introduced. And, uh, and also to meet with members of the community, I got to meet with our auto dealers and our mm -hmm. pizza hut, uh, franchisees association. Every week I would take about 40 meetings with different business groups. Most, most were folks who lived right here in the, in the community who had taken the time to travel to Washington, DC to communicate with their congressmen about issues of the day that were important to their industries. So not only did I have this amazing opportunity to, uh, get to be the go-between and corresponding with 3,000 constituents. But then as I progressed in my career, uh, I got to have meetings with and meet the business leaders in our community and understand the challenges that their businesses faced. And oftentimes it would be maybe a mother whose child had died of cancer and mm -hmm. didn't get the resources that they needed. And, you know, and there were a lot of incredible stories like that that really made you realize how important the work was. Yeah. And uh, it's just an incredible opportunity to serve. And I've, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I get a, I get a kind of a high from, uh, serving people. Uh, I love whether it's somebody, you know, a woman called me yesterday and I, I'm getting a lot of phone calls right now from families that are, uh, suffering from homelessness right. and whether it's that level of service or it's somebody who, 
uh, is having trouble with the building department. Uh, I, I actually really enjoy being of service to people. Uh, I think it's the most fun thing that any of us can do is serve others. And uh, so I love the job of being mayor because I get to be helpful. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the example of how I, I think about oftentimes how different levels of government interact with the constituents that they serve. So it's fascinating to me to think about uh, a purpose, a person, a representative in D.C. receiving all of these pieces yeah. of correspondence. I get between three and four hundred emails a day. Mm-hmm. Just me, just Rachel at the chamber, right. the lady over there, three to four hundred. So I can't even imagine the volume yeah. of correspondence. Now, thankfully, I, some of those I can just delete. So, uh, but I can't, you know, it's just fascinating to me, uh, the process by which the average person, the average business, the average whoever can connect with their elected. So thanks for taking a minute for that little segue and digging in, because I think that's just so fascinating. That's one of the things, the chamber that we try to do is to connect our business members with all levels of government Mm -hmm. in whatever way we can and, and, and to advocate for them. So I think that's fascinating about being the mayor or being a council person is there's still enough time in the day to take uh, all of the someone's calling me as we speak right now. uh, But um, there's still enough time in the day to answer the phone. And people call me all the time on my cell phone number, which is six, eight, nine, two, 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 (laughs) zero. They call me every day and they go, oh, I didn't think that you would answer the phone personally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I took the office telephone number off of my business cards. And I said to the staff, I don't want to hand out a line that gets answered by staff or goes to voicemail. I want people to call me directly on my cell phone number. I'll get back to them if I can't take their call. Uh, But I always get back to people the same day or I take their call on the spot. And I love when people are surprised that I answer the phone personally. I mean, there's only 103,000 people in Vista. So we're, and and I chose Vista specifically because of the size of this city, right. that I could know you as the chamber executive and I could know the city council people, that I could be involved in the uh, organization of government and the community, that I could you know, I could really plug in and know people. I wanted that. I, uh, I, I did a lot of traveling and living in, in different places. Community is incredibly important to me. And I looked at Vista and I said, this is a place that I can be a bona fide vested member of the community. And anybody can because it's the right size community. And so that was incredibly important when I made a, a, a real decision to live here. That and uh, it's a beautiful community with a great quality of living. And of course, we have the best weather on earth. Absolutely. So I have to ask so the mayor and people may not know this, but technically it's a part time gig. Right. right. That's right. So you own a small business. Yes. Um, and you're answering the calls mm-hmm. when they come in. So is is it really a fair representation to say that being mayor is a part time job? It seems pretty all encompassing to me. It, it is. It, uh, it it certainly can take uh, much more of your time. It, you know, it's and if you love it like I do, then you don't mind. Um I have to uh, always thank my wife, Shauna. She is uh, really very sweet to allow me to, to do this. And I promised her I won't do it forever mm-hmm. because it does take a lot of time uh, away from the time that I want to spend with my with my family. Um, but it's, it's work that <clears throat> is, like I said, it's meaningful and it's enjoyable. And I won't do it my whole life. But uh, for this moment in my life, I'm really honored to have the ability to do it. And I really appreciate my wife for letting me do it. That's awesome. I have to just also add to the fact about Vista being such a great community. I moved here also 20 years ago in 2003 and I moved here to work for the city of Vista. I worked for another uh, municipality in Texas where I grew up 
And when I was deciding whether or not to, I applied for the job and there's a whole story behind that. But before I accepted, I, I, I was 25. I knew that uh, I'd probably stay, you know, be here a while. I told my parents I'll be in, be there for two years, but I knew in my mind, like this was a big move. And if I'm going to go to this community, I want to be in this community. I want to be engaged in my community. I want to be part of it. So learning about all of the things that were offered and all of the research. So I can definitely connect with your story about just making sure that this is the right fit for you and that you could get to know everybody. And, you know, I, my, my family jokes that I'm a joiner, I join all the things. And, and I, I'm yeah. proud of that. I, I take that as a compliment Absolutely. because being involved and connected to my community is really important to me. So I, I share that um, with you. So, okay. Next question. I want to ask you, we mentioned homelessness. Mm-hmm. We talked about it in the intro. Tell me um, about the work that the city's done and the, the work specifically that the city that you and the city have done regarding this issue because it's it's not a vista specific issue it's no, much bigger so, than that and it's yeah. very complex so tell me a little bit about what what's been done and what can be done how much time have you got <laughs> <laughs> i know it's this is a short interview and, no, and we me, can barely scratch the surface let me, let but me, let me try to encapsulate yeah. the time that we have um to to begin with about five years ago i really begun to notice uh the prevalence and growth of homelessness in vista and it, you know uh Nine years ago, when I was first elected to the council, I did not notice very many people living unsheltered in our city. Uh, about about five years ago, maybe six years ago, I really started to see the problem grow. And uh, I realized that it was something that we needed to take very seriously. And I asked my colleagues on the council to make it the number one priority of the city. We get together every beginning of every new council, which is every two years, and we set goals for that two-year period of time. And so I asked the council to make it the number one goal of the city to solve the causes and symptoms of homelessness in our in our city. And so making that the number one goal of our city, uh, the natural progression from that is was to try to make a plan. And that's where that was the genesis of our strategic plan to uh, to solve homelessness. And um, and we were honored to be recognized uh, nationally for for that plan. And I, I'll tell you. There wasn't necessarily a lot of secret sauce to the plan. It was simply that we we held a, a number of hearings in the community, geographically all throughout the city, and we invited our residents, our service providers, and all the leaders of all kinds of different organizations, uh, everybody was invited, to come and to give us ideas. And we literally incorporated every single idea that we received and there, there was just one, there was one idea that we didn't, um, and that was to buy a minivan, drive it around downtown and ask people if they wanted to get in the minivan <laughs> for the day and go to the day center uh, for unsheltered people in Oceanside. And nobody had ever done that before. And ultimately we decided that that wasn't, a, a, we didn't think there was enough merit behind the idea. So we decided not to do that one. But some of the things that we did, and I, and I would, uh, I asked the city to create cityofvista.com slash homelessness so that it was easy to get to and find our uh, work on homelessness. Um, obviously, first and foremost, we obtained shelter beds, which is something that in the past we did not have City of Vista sponsored shelter beds. We have five beds at Interfaith uh, Haven House is the name of the shelter at Interfaith in Escondido. And we have five beds at La Posada, which is operated by Catholic Charities. 
uh, and is about 1.6 miles from uh, the southern end of Vista. It's right next door to the police station on Faraday, uh, if folks are aware of where that is, the Carlsbad Police Station. So it's it's very close to our community. And, um, and we're actually working right now uh, as a development and really, it's it's a living document. We're we're continually evolving. Right now, we're working to do something that's very innovative. Uh, again, I, this morning, I've I've literally been on Zoom, and before that, I was on a phone call with someone else who is a national expert on the problem. And I asked, and I continue to ask. Uh, we're building a non-congregate shelter. So right now, you go to the shelter. There's 50 beds in one open room. They call that a congregate shelter. Right. Um, but we're building. To, to my knowledge, I, I, I can't be the first, but I'm not aware of another example of a non-congregate shelter. So we're buying two apartment buildings. Um, we've gotten some help from the uh, the state Senate. Uh, Catherine Blakespear has secured some money for us uh, to help us do this, where it's a partnership with the city of Encinitas. A lot of people, we, we ask people, we've, we've had over 5,000 separate conversations on the streets of Vista with people who are unsheltered. Uh, it's a, approximately 400 unique individuals now over the last about three years that we've had these conversations with. But one of the questions that we always ask is, you know, why are you declining to go to the shelter? Because unfortunately, 94% of the people that we ask to go to the shelter decline to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, overwhelmingly, people don't want to go. And so we ask them, why do you not want to go? I can't take my wife or my girlfriend. I can't take my dog. I snore and I've been asked to leave because I snore uh, or, you know, uh, I don't feel safe. I was attacked when I was at the shelter before. Uh, and I'm afraid somebody's going to attack me. I'm afraid my property will be stolen. A lot of these uh, difficulties are addressed when you have a bedroom of your own that you can close the door on for the night and lock yourself in. And, you know, I mean, how many of us would feel uh, like we could get a good night's rest if we were in a room with 50 strangers who you know, many of whom are suffering from mental illness, disorder addictions, uh, or addiction disorders rather. So there's some very obvious reasons that we can see. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, it's a total experiment. One of the things that I've asked repeatedly is why have none of the other shelter providers tried this yet? Probably because of cost. It certainly costs more. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the number one driver is actually staffing, right? Mm-hmm. When we look at the cost of providing shelter, the real estate in and of itself isn't necessarily the significant driver. It's really the the, the staff. Um, so there must be reasons, or maybe there aren't. We're going to find out. It's an exper- it's an experiment, and that's it's one of the reasons I said let's search the state and find out who's done it before. Uh, we haven't brought this online yet, but we've got to be willing to ex- do two things. We have to be willing to experiment, and we have to be willing to confess failure as soon as we realize that there's a failure. One of the things government does a horrible job of. We cannot admit when we fail. We we start a program and then that program has a constituency. People who are served by the program, employees of the program, contractors that receive money through the program, politicians, council people, uh, you know, assembly people, whoever it is, who are the ones who, uh, you know, wanted the, the public acclaim for creating the program. They don't want to confess that it's a failure. The sooner we admit our failures, the sooner we can get to the successes, right? We can re- reallocate those resources in exactly. other ways. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I am most committed to is failing publicly, right? If we're not willing to fail publicly, then we have no desire to succeed. Mm-hmm. And that is so important. And nobody in government wants to fail. 
But as soon as we admit our failures, we can reinvest our resources into potential successes. So I wanna be a leader who is transparent about failure. I wanna be a leader who's transparent about data. That's something that was really the focus of my meetings this morning was about data transparency. In a week from now, I'm gonna participate in a uh, press conference with the San Diego County Taxpayers Association. I've been one of the few elected leaders that uh, answered their call to um, call for greater data transparency. We need to know, and I'll just give you one really simple example. In the last six months, we paid for 1,825 bed nights of shelter. And we know that not all of those bed nights of shelter were delivered because in some cases, because of a COVID outbreak uh, that diminished capacity in one of the shelters. And in, in other instances, uh, several instances, actually difficulty staffing. Everyone's having trouble staffing right now. doesn't matter what the industry is. And so, but, but I don't know out of 1,825 bed nights, I don't know, was it 25 nights that weren't delivered? Was it 500 mm -hmm. nights that weren't delivered? I don't know if it's a small problem or an enormous problem. And so I'm demanding the quantification, you know, numerically of the taxpayers paid for this. I have to know, and I have to be able to account to the taxpayers whether or not we got what we contracted for. And, and, I, and I told the service providers, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus here. This is not about like, I do want our money back. If you didn't give us what we paid for, then you have to give us our money back. That I mean, but that's even more important than that because we're trying to solve the problem. I need to know if the beds aren't available because we need to recalibrate and we need to find other solutions. If we need to bring in a third provider for shelter beds, and obviously we are bringing a third uh, solution in with our own shelter and we're gonna be having a lot of public conversations about who's gonna operate it. There'll be a request for proposal and a public process to select the operator. And there's going to be a lot of robust debate uh, from the city council about what the rules are going to be. How, what's the maximum stay? How long can you be there? Uh, there's, there's a this certain- in the non-congregate space? In, in the non-congregate okay. space. Mm -hmm. Because what we really want to provide uh, with this facility is what's called emergency bridge shelter. And it's called bridge because it's a bridge to permanent housing. If we make this into a permanent environment- then it becomes a small quantity of permanent housing. But what we wanna do is we wanna get people off of the street and we wanna bridge, provide that bridge for them to get into long-term permanent housing. And that's something else the city of Vista is currently working on. And also part of the, the plan is we, are, we have an RFP right now to build uh, 50 units of permanent supportive housing. And you know, as I've been talking with Dr. Luke Bergman, who's the county's uh, chief mental health officer and the county conservator, um, one of the things he identified was he said, you know, permanent supportive housing, there's a different class of housing called board in care. Uh, and yeah, you have to really get into this, the taxonomy and the jargon here. Board in care is a little lesser uh, level of care, but he said, you know, we really need more of that right now. We need more addiction recovery beds. And so we're going to continue to recalibrate and ask the questions exactly which resources are necessary and how do we as a city do our part to provide them? Uh, and we're looking at every other city and saying, hey, do your part as well. Uh, the bottom line, the, there, there's a, the solution to homelessness is incredibly simple and incredibly difficult, right? And it's this, if we're not gonna help the people who are too sick to know that they're sick, then we are not serious about solving the problem. When we help the people who are too ill to realize that they're ill, we will have solved the problem. 
But that is the most complicated uh, part of the problem. You know, one of the things I, I, I always want to talk about is I'm a strong believer in involuntary treatment for people who are mentally ill and who are uh, addicted. Now, does that mean that every person who's mentally ill or addicted needs to be treated involuntarily? Of course not. It's a very small percentage. But what happens when you have the whole population, 100, for example, for easy math, you have 100 people who are suffering from mental illness or substance abuse disorder, and we help three of those people into treatment, maybe even against their will. Now 97 people realize that if they don't accept the help that we're offering, there's a pathway to, to be helped whether you want the help or whether you don't. And now let's talk about something that's incredibly important, which is protecting everyone's civil liberties. The Constitution says you can't be deprived of your life, your liberty, or, or property without due process of law. What that means is that there's a trial by jury. You have to have a unanimous jury verdict in order to put somebody into a conservatorship. So to treat somebody on an involuntary basis requires a unanimous jury verdict. And I always ask, and I'd ask every listener, if you served on a jury, would you uh, make a ruling as a juror to take someone's liberty away from them if you didn't think it was absolutely necessary to their health and welfare? I think we're all caring human beings, and I'm sure at least one person on that jury would go, I think that person's capable of taking care of themselves. I'm not gonna take their liberty away unless I can see and all 12 of us can see that this person's life is destroyed because they're not getting the help that they need. Constitutionally, you have the right to an attorney to defend you in this process. Under the Lannerman Petrus Short Act, signed in California in 1967, you have the right to a psychiatrist to work with you to make a diagnosis, uh, who's the highest level of mental health professional. You have the right to a patient's right advocate whose job it is to make sure that you show up in court on time to make sure that you're properly clothed, that you're clean, that you're able to understand all of the process, to defend and make sure that your rights have been exercised, uh, that you're aware of your rights and that and you can take full advantage of your rights, okay? So when you look at all, and then by the way, maximum one year, okay? The conservatorship process lasts for a maximum of one year before that individual needs to be brought back into a courtroom and a totally new jury trial. Every 12 months, you have the right to a new trial by jury to determine mental competency. And again, we don't need to do this for, but a very small percentage. If we can help the people who are the most sick to get off the streets. And, you know, I, I was one of the first people about probably three years ago to start talking about anosognosia. It's a, a Latin term. It means to not know a disease. And I'm starting to hear this term more and more frequently. And people are understanding that anosognosia is the state of being sick, but being sick mentally to where one does not recognize that they are sick and would benefit from treatment. And this is so important. Uh, if I'm addicted to heroin and every day I go out and I destroy my body uh, you know, in my mind in pursuit of heroin, or if I'm schizophrenic or psychotic or severely bipolar, um, that I may not realize that I would benefit from treatment. And, you know, and there's, there, there are real reasons that should be talked about and deserve to be talked about why people don't want to be treated or don't want to take medicines, but we need to make decisions as a society about whether somebody is actually better served by living and dying on the streets in squalid, disgusting conditions. And if you take the time like I have to go call on people in the encampments to see their bodies covered with sores, 
to see a woman who I encountered in front of the Vista Paint Building at Sycamore, who told me that she lived on the second floor. In fact, she owned the building, according to her. There's no second floor of this building. She was in a, uh, a drug psychosis, okay? And she had broken her leg on the street. And because she was living on the street, did not pursue medical treatment, her leg looks like this because it was never set. And this is a woman that lives in horrible pain every day of her life because when she she was injured living outdoors. And for a time, and it, you know, we were having somebody discovered in these encampments probably about once a month who had died of overdose or exposure. Um, and it, it ebbs and flows, but you know, fentanyl is a huge killer of people. Uh, people are dying in, in these encampments. It's a very unhealthy environment. And it, I would submit to every human being that's listening, it is not moral, just, or compassionate to allow somebody to live and die in an encampment. It's moral, just, and compassionate to go out and pick up our brothers and sisters in humanity and bring them to the help that they need. This is the answer to the question. People are angry that government's not solving the problem because we all see the problem getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But it comes down to this. Do you have the political will to help the people who are too sick to realize that they're sick? Not 100 out of 100, but maybe three out of 100. We have 1,200 people in the county of San Diego, 3.3 million people. Only 1,200 are on a conservatorship right now. And we're only renewing about 300 of those for a 12-month period every year at the moment. So the number of people on conservatorship is getting much lower. We are not serious. We only have one judge in the whole county for the Superior Court, one judge that does mental competency. We spent in, in like 2021, we spent almost $80,000 in housing and homelessness programs through the state of California budget for every single unsheltered person. We reported as a state 125,000 unsheltered persons to the federal government. We need to take some of the funds that are not finding the mark and we need to divert those resources into the court system so that we can pay for the defense counsel. We can pay for the, uh, the, 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 the patient's right advocate, pay for the doctors, pay for the courtrooms and all the necessary services of the court so that we can find. And we need to, and I've been uh, talking with Governor Newsom's staff here locally about supporting his initiative. I'm reviewing it right now, and I think I'm inclined to support the governor He's going to pursue funding specifically for 10,000 new uh, mental health and addiction treatment beds. When the governor is right on these issues, and of course the governor and I don't agree on many issues, but on this issue, you know, Governor Newsom is actually uh, really leading uh, the majority party in California, I think in the right direction. He's calling for more and more treatment in, on an involuntary basis. Care court is a preparatory for conservatorship. Care court is an outpatient mode of uh, treatment that is ordered by a judge and jury. Care court places a court order on an individual that mandates that they appear for medical appointments, that they take drugs that are prescribed for them by their physician. And if they're not able to comply with the court's order under the care court program, then they might be subject to a conservatorship. So uh, the governor has been clear about his support for conservatorship for the most severely mentally ill, and I support him in that. And it is, honestly, it's anathema to me that uh, more policymakers have not done the, the homework on this to understand that the governor's right 
and that uh, and to agree with what I'm saying uh, that we need to make the resources available to treat people who are who are sick. Uh, Do you think people are um, fearful that it would government would have an overreach? I mean, I know you explained the absolutely. very difficult process it takes to do conservatorship, right. but is that the? Do you think that's the reason why people are absolutely. reluctant to talk about that as an option because of the possibility yep. for government overreach or for someone to get into a conservatorship who mm-hmm. shouldn't be? Um, is that is that seems 100%. to maybe be why? That's absolutely yeah. the reason. And, you know, I would tell you, uh, we're, of course, we're going to make mistakes. I know we are. Uh, but I think we're in a lot better position than we were in the late, uh, or as actually the early 1980s, when Geraldo Rivera went into Willowbrook in New Jersey and exposed the wrongdoing in the mental institutions there. What happened um, in the uh, the early 1980s, uh, you know, people love to, to point fingers, at, you know, was it the Democrats or the Republicans or Reagan? The, the truth was we had a Democrat majority in Congress and we had a Republican president who looked at the national outcry about Willowbrook. And this is, if people don't remember, this is what made Geraldo Rivera very famous, is that he was the one that exposed the nation's mental health uh, hospitals. He was actually invited into the hospital by practitioners and clinicians who were, um, were very troubled by what was happening there. And he told the story about how there were four children in one crib and there were patients that were strapped to gurneys in the hallways and the inadequate level of care, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and you know, maybe for hundreds of years. But think about what our level of understanding of mental disease was just 40 years ago. We didn't have compassion because we didn't understand mental disease. I feel like even in the last 10 years, there's been an incredible leap Absolutely. around that understanding. I think- the understanding that a very large number of us suffer from, you know, or, or do during our lives suffer from different uh, mental illness, whether it be a bout of depression or a severe mental illness. Um, and, and I think also what's so important is that people are finally willing to talk about the fact that most of our families have been impacted by mental disease. And, you know, our willingness to talk about things really helps us to solve these problems. But I think also... You know, we have a completely different expectation of care for those who are suffering from mental illness today in 2023 than we did 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and certainly a different expectation than we did 40 years ago. So, you know, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. Congress in the early 1980s ended federal funding for institutes for mental disease. In uh, in 19... Was it 63 or 65 when Medicaid and Medicare were adopted? There was a provision that uh, prohibited Medicaid reimbursement for any institute for mental disease with more than 16 uh, patient beds. And the reason for that was because Congress was fu- uh, was federally funding through a separate bill funding for mental hospitals. So Medicaid said you know, this Medicaid is not going to be for, for mental disease. That's covered over here. That's covered over here. Mm-hmm. But then in the 1980s, Congress just eliminated the funding, pulled the, the wool out, pulled the rug out from underneath our nation's uh, mental hospitals. And, you know, probably that was the right thing to do. And everybody agreed the, the system of mental hospitals is broken, maybe irreparably, irreparably so, and we need a complete reset. But what we did is we sent a lot of people home and what happens when your 25, 30, 40-year-old child is suffering from severe mental illness? How do you as a 60, 70, or 80-year-old parent cope with 
somebody who may have behavioral disorder, may be violent, may be erratic. How do you provide for your child that needs some of these uh, supervisory uh, mental, uh, you know, health uh, services? How does a parent provide for that? And and I have and, and I, some of the most heartbreaking conversations I've had with people that live in Vista are the parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things that always comes up is, well, you're you're just inviting all these people to come here, and I can tell you about seventy five percent of the people that uh, we and we ask everybody where they were homeless uh, first and where they were last permanently housed. About seventy five percent of the people that are homeless in Vista were permanently housed. They were living in a permanent housing unit in Vista when they became homeless. So homelessness is not just a problem where people are being attracted to Vista, but it's it, it starts in Vista, and uh, it, people everywhere become homeless. But um, that that's something that always comes up. So I, I always want to share that information with people because I I think it, it gives us a little bit more compassion when we don't imagine that it's just people coming from elsewhere to utilize the services that we're offering. Because uh, we're not talking about we're talking about a very specific portion of people who are homeless in this, what you're talking about, because there are people who lost their job. They were one or two paychecks away from not making rent. I mean, there've been times in my life in my twenties where if I had lost my job, I I don't know what I would have done next. Right. So I think we can all relate to that, but what you're talking about are, and there are a lot of services for folks like that, right. right, To help them bridge to the next thing. Um, But what you're talking about is those very seriously um, chronic, homeless folks right. who need that next level. That's right. We refer to this population of homeless persons as chronically unsheltered, which means that for 12 months they've been living outside without shelter. Uh, it, it, you make a very good point, a very important point. We have Solutions for Change. We have Operation Hope. Uh, we have a lot of other great organizations. For the individual who's homeless and does not want to be homeless, we are able, because the resources are there, I promise you they're there. Okay, Um, for the person that will accept the help, we are able to do amazing things and the resources are there. And uh, and and we've got a lot of great people in our community that have recovered from being homeless. And, uh, you know, there there is a there is a place available right now for for families who are homeless and and don't want to be the the real challenge that we face. And the, the problem that the public sees every day are the individuals who are living on the streets right. who are primarily addicted to narcotic drugs. About 95% of them are addicts. And and there's this enormous debate. I don't know why. I'd love to I'd love to hear the person uh, who, who disagrees with this explain why they do. But there's a huge debate about the role that narcotic drugs play in chronic unsheltered homelessness. The reality is, and anybody who spends time in the encampments knows that it's about 95% of the people living in those encampments are addicted to narcotic drugs. Is the debate that there's also mental illness? So is it kind of a, a chicken and egg situation? Are you mentally ill because you use narcotic sure. drugs? Or are you using narcotic drugs because you were mentally ill? And, and here's Is another, that the question? Is it, that the debate? It, 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 it's part of the debate, but here's why to me it doesn't matter. Right. The American Psychiatric Association defines narcotic drug addiction as mental disorder. Okay, there you so go. So if you're addicted to drugs, you're suffering from a mental disorder. It doesn't matter whether you're also, you have co-occurring morbidity mm-hmm. of, you know, being uh, a psychotic, severe bipolar, schizophrenic. These things are all mental conditions that, you know, once you become a heroin addict, maybe before you were an addict to heroin, we could say that you had control 
over it, right? But once you become addicted to methamphetamine or fentanyl, the person has lost the rational choice capability to say no. They're suffering from a mental disease. Why would we not give parity in our minds to the way that we would serve and treat and provide for somebody who's addicted to fentanyl and can't make a rational decision to stop using it? Uh, why wouldn't we give that person the same love and concern that we would somebody who is not addicted to narcotics, but who is simply, uh, you know, in a state of psychosis? Right. I mean, yeah. if we if if we're going to be serious about loving people and treating people and helping people who are mentally ill, then we have to all acknowledge that addiction is a mental disorder, and we have to treat it as such. Uh, so, I, I, you know, why we're in this big debate over whether or not narcotic drugs are playing a major role, I can't understand because it's as obvious as the nose on our face that it is. But yet there's this unwillingness to confess and admit that. Yeah. And I, I don't understand it. I really don't. I wonder if it's um, that when we say homelessness, it refers to this entire spectrum right. of people. Sure. Like, the, the, like yeah. the mom and two kids who were behind right. in rent right. and all the way to the very seriously right. Mentally ill, and, of course, and so the, I'm only referring to the chronically of course you unsheltered are. Of course. people. Yeah. Of course, but maybe yeah. people think about this right. category, and when they when you sure. talk about addiction, they think, "Oh, wait, you're applying it," but it's not applied to everyone. It's applied mm -hmm. to this very specific subset, essentially. That's right. Yeah, because we're so successful at serving the the, uh, the families and the people who are homeless, but who are not chronically homeless. Mm -hmm. Because we're so successful at helping those individuals, what we're doing is working so well. I mean, that's the enormously bright spot of success. If you lose your housing because you've lost your job, you became sick, the services that are available are incredible. And I know that you you and I have been recently in the last week or two, uh, we were at the grand opening together of the pantry at Operation Hope. Right. Uh, the services that are available. I mean, uh, I always want to remind people about the food bank in the business park. There is a beautiful grocery store that is open and everything inside of it is free. If you are hungry, if you're in need, you walk in and they ask you to self-certify that you're a person in need and you they're walk in. They're not looking at your bank statement. They're not asking no. for you to come in mm -hmm. with page stubs or anything. If you're no. in need, you can go to the North County Food Bank and you can pick up fresh produce and diapers and baby formula and whatever you need. And they have a huge assortment. And it's not just enough that they're in the, the business park. They're also working with hundreds of Partner. small partners that have small community food banks. And what's great about what Operation Hope is doing is they said, we're going to bring these resources right here to the women and families that we're serving at Operation Hope so that they don't even have to go to the main food bank facility. They don't have to meet someone new, uh, suffer any embarrassment. Um, we're already working with these people and we can connect them with those food resources right there. So the, the resource, and we, you know, we all love to tell the story about the organizations that are, are serving family homelessness, uh, needs because they're doing such a great job and they're so effectively meeting the needs. And of course, more is always needed, right? Uh, Sean and I give $50 every month to Operation Hope. We have for many years and I encourage everybody give $5 give $10, give $15, whatever you can afford, give something where we've all, you know, those of us who've been fortunate enough to be employed and have a safe place to live, we can all afford to do something to help people who need a hand up, right? Yeah. 
And so that's why I think it's important, even if it's a small amount, to do something every single month, just to recognize that that's gotta be a part of our obligation to serve and help other people. But the frustration sets in when we talk about this group of chronically unsheltered people, because those are the ones that we see every day. Those are the ones that are living on the street. Those are the ones who are suffering from the greatest uh, health consequences. So- And they're the ones that die. Absolutely. Right. They're the ones that are that are the that are the greatest risk of death from their from their situation. So we could obviously talk about this. So and I would love to come back and talk uh, anytime. Yeah. And and I invite, you know, people that have a perspective. If if you if you're listening to me today and you strongly disagree with me, call me, six eight nine two 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 zero. Tell me. Write me an email at jfranklin at cityvista.com. I want to hear from the community members. And you know, I'm 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 barely smart enough to know that I'm not right all the time. And if, uh, if somebody's can educate me, I'm a lay person, you know, I'm not an expert on homelessness, but I'm trying to become one because I think that I need to be to help solve this problem. Um, but if somebody's got a different perspective, I want to hear it. I want to learn. I'm open-minded. I'm willing to always hear my colleagues and service providers. And I think very important. Uh, and one of the most important things I do when I meet people in the encampments and I get them a referral, I go over and I visit them whether they're at the motel or they're at the shelter. And I tell, I have told many people this, I give my business card to my cell phone number and I say, I can't go live in the shelter with you. I can't go through the experience that you're about to have with you, but I need to learn from you. So will you call me from time to time and can I come visit you? And will you tell me what you've gone through? And I've done this with a number of individuals so that I can get a firsthand report of what's working and what's not working in the shelter system. Because without that firsthand information, I wouldn't be, you know, as as well informed as I am about why people are leaving the shelters, why they don't stay, why we're not able to get them transitioned into permanent housing. Uh, but it, it's super important to get that granular information, and that's what I'm trying to do. So, uh, whatever your experience with homelessness is, reach out, call me, let me know. I want to hear from you. Hey, wow. Um, Gosh, we had so much, I had so much on my list to talk about, but I'm glad we, d we dug into that topic. So it's so important. I appreciate uh, yeah, the time. Of course, of course. And I know um, we're getting close to the end and I know you have a very busy day, but I have, I, I do want to ask you uh, on a light, more lighthearted mm -hmm. note, yeah. the city's turn, it turned 60 this year. Yes. There's a party coming up. That's right. Tell us about it. Do you have any info? We'll put it in the show notes. So um, go to uh, the city of Vista .com. Okay. Uh, We should have it soon up on our webpage. I think the date's October 14th, October 14th. Yes. yes, I'll be there and we're going to have a big party and we hope that as many people as possible can show up. We're going to have some performances and some opportunities for the whole family. So yes, uh, I, I'm sure the chamber will probably uh, be helping us with it. We'll be there. Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, hopefully you'll be promoting it on your website. And so if you want to give people a link to it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and maybe you and I should do a, a promo video soon. I would love that. To, just to promote that event. Absolutely. That Absolutely. Okay. So um, I wanted to ask you if you have just another quick yeah. minute, what advice do you have for someone potentially who's interested in serving their community as an elected official? Do you have show any, up. just show up. Okay. Come to the council meetings, come to the commission meetings, speak up. Uh, you know, I, I have long had a, a saying, uh, which is, you know, governance and politics belong to those who show up and, uh, Anybody who's ever taken the time to come and speak at a council meeting knows we are paying attention and we are very much listening to what the public has to say. Everybody has three minutes to come and speak on any topic that they want. 
And uh, we, we, we take it very seriously when citizens come and tell us what they want. Um, you know, this recent park that we've acquired, citizens didn't want a hotel. They didn't want condominiums. We listened to them. We married that with our goal of acquiring more parkland. And we decided to buy some land and take it off the development map. And we're very proud of the outcome because we believe that creating a park in that neighborhood was needed. There's thousands of apartment homes nearby. So we're looking for those win-win opportunities. But when citizens speak up, when they tell us what our blind spots are, it's very helpful. We're, as you mentioned, our council is a council of lay people. We're a part-time council. We are the board of directors for the city. Our city uh, manager is our chief executive of government. And so we're sort of, you know, we're providing that, uh, that supervisory oversight. Uh, we really need to hear uh, it, it, potholes, graffiti, report them on Axis Vista or send me a text uh, or give me a call or call your city council person. Uh, we will get on those things. Somebody called me recently and said, why it's so hot at the skate parks? Why is there not a drinking fountain? I didn't realize we didn't have a drinking fountain at the skate parks. Wow, uh, I didn't either. Yeah, and so I, you know, I've got uh, the city public works director investigating the possibility right now of putting some drinking fountains in. Those suggestions that make things better come from the public. So uh, get involved by showing up and speaking up. Those are the two most important things you can do. I have to give a plug for the Access Vista app. Yes. Um, I use it. I'm probably an annoy people because I report things, you know, I'm driving around town and I see something and I'll put it right in Access Vista. It gets addressed. So we'll make sure to put a link for Please. that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here. Um, I do have a couple of quick questions. Yeah. Uh, my rapid fire, I always end every interview. So I want to ask you um, a book, a book mm -hmm. you think everyone should read or a book that was particularly powerful for you. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, you know, the one, I think one of the most important things I remember from that book is that people remember a conversation the best uh, where they did most of the speaking, like I did this morning, I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's about how to listen to people and how to make them feel heard. Uh, I think that's one of the most important books I've ever read in my life. Well, I, that's a, a great book. I've read it a number of times and I know it's been such a popular book that it spawned educational things for kids mm -hmm. and for teens and college curriculum around that. So it's a really powerful book. Uh, I second your suggestion of reading that and also second your suggestion of listening. You know, one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because I get to listen yeah. to people and their stories and what's important to them. And then I help to get um, help amplify that uh, perspective um, among our listeners. So thank you all for listening. Um, so I want to ask you next a song. You got to turn it up. Yeah. Is there a song that you love or that's moving for you? You know, I have a really eclectic uh, taste in music. I mean, everything from Mozart to rap. I'm mm -hmm. serious. I love, I really love music. And uh, there's not a genre that I don't enjoy. But lately I, I was thinking I would tell you, uh, I've been listening to a lot of Johnny Cash. Okay. Um, but, you know, again, I, I'll hear something on the radio. I mean, I like some pop music. Um, I, I, I probably am a little bit more partial to, to older music. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I, I love all kinds of music. So, you know, anything with a good beat. And I like it when you can hear the words and there's a story, right? Okay. I love story. Jim Croce. I'm a big Jim oh, Croce gosh, fan. Yeah. Anytime there's a story and there's deep emotion in the song, that's what I'm looking for in music. I love okay. that. So you want to ha have that connection. Absolutely. Okay. I, I want to, you know, I want to see the, the, I want to see a picture in my mind, uh, when I'm listening to music that okay. I really like that. Um, okay. Tell me something that inspires you. Something that inspires me. Um, 
the young people in our community. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce is such a great uh, program with the rising stars to see those young people, uh, to see the emotion that their parents have. And, you know, and for all of us in the room uh, to be reaching for the tissue because these young people are just so inspiring and motivational. Uh, but not just at the Rising Stars program, but every day in our community, I see young people, whether it's kids playing in the parks. Uh, you know, I, I love and I, a lot of what I do is for the youth in our community. Um, that's one of the reasons that I, I said acquiring more parks needs to be one of our top priorities because Vista and the state of California were growing. And, you know, and, and this is a whole nother political subject, but we're, we're being forced by Sacramento to densify something I don't necessarily agree with. But as we become more dense and there's a pressure to grow vertically, I'm looking at New York City going, how important was it that they carved out this massive Central Park mm -hmm. and all the smaller parks in New York? And I think it's a great legacy that I hope to leave that we create more parks in the, in the city of Vista so that every family, particularly uh, some of the more economically disadvantaged communities that have a lot of younger children, I want people to have a place to go and sit on a piece of green grass and enjoy being with their families. That When I see that, that makes me so happy. When I go to Bob Williamson Park mm -hmm. and see families having big gatherings there and enjoying that outdoor space, that makes me so happy. That's awesome. I have to tell you, Palo Vista Park is nearing completion. Yes. It's looking so really exciting. good. Every time we drive by, both of my kids, even my 13, almost 14 year old, she'll be embarrassed I say this every single time. They're so excited. They can't wait for it to open. They want to go great. check it out. So that's great. Um, and I also want to just say quickly about Rising Star. This is the 10th year for that program. And uh, we just wrote an article in the Vista magazine that just came out, uh, the August edition, about uh, some follow ups with some of our past Rising Star really cool. students. Um, and so I encourage people to check that out. Okay, last song. I mean, last question for you. Tell me a Vista business that deserves a shout out. Well, you know, I, I, I love to eat, as you can see. Um, we've got a lot of great Italian restaurants. I, I love the Nucci's uh, family. Uh, they're, they're all literally becoming family. Uh, you know, they've, it's been a favorite place to eat for a long time, but uh, Sam and Lisa are the owners there. Their son, Michael, is actually engaged to my sister-in-law. So, uh, you know, we're, we're literally becoming uh, one family, but uh, I, I love the food there, eat there frequently. Uh, so you can, you can find me some nights of the week having dinner there with my wife and family. That's great. And then yeah. the Nucci family, they're very involved in the community, yes, they are. sponsoring different sports teams and things like that. So that's a great, great suggestion. Well, I want to thank you so much, Mayor Franklin, for yeah. being here. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Me. Yeah. Thank you to our guest, Mayor John Franklin. And thank you for listening to Velocity. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. Help us move Vista forward with Velocity. The Vista Chamber of Commerce is a nonprofit organization that serves as a catalyst for business growth. Find us online at vistachamber.org.